Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As we pass the summer solstice and we've begun to glimpse the summer weather, many of us are turning our thoughts to summer holidays, our at-home staycation. And for a lot of us, that will include a trip to one of the UK's 15 national parks, the Yorkshire Dales, the Peak District or the Lake District. Vital open spaces for us to share. But are these parks in a parlour state? And if they are, what can we do about it? Joining me today to discuss the parks, their current and future health, and our options to keep them healthy, I'm delighted to welcome my guests, Anita Conrad, Chief Executive of the Campaign for National Parks, whose background spans sustainability in both the natural and the built environments. Anita, hello and welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to have you on the programme. Our second guest, Guy Shrubsole, is the Policy and Campaigns Coordinator at Rewilding Britain, and he's also the author of Who Owns England? a book about who owns the land and how they use it. Guy, hello and welcome. Hello, very pleased to be here. We have a lot to talk about and the parks are obviously a huge subject as well as being a huge amount of land space. But I wonder if we could start perhaps by telling everybody what are the national parks? Because I think there might be some confusion about where they are, what they are, who the land belongs to, all those sorts of things. So Anita, can you just tell us a little bit about the history of the parks and and what they really are and what they mean? The national parks are what we call protected landscapes. They are the the landscapes in Britain that have the highest levels of environmental protection for conservation purposes. The the history of the national parks goes back to the early 20th century and the, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act in 1949 enabled the, the establishment, the setup of, of national parks in this country. And the first national parks were designated in 1951. And by the end of the 1950s, we had 10 national parks, including the Lake District, Snowdonia and the Peak Districts. And then in 1988, um, another member was added to the family, the the, the Norfolk Broads. The Broads Bill gave the, the Broads National Park equivalent status to the other national parks. And the first national park of the 21st century was the New Forest, in 2005, followed by um, the South Downs in 2010. That's lovely. So we're adding all the time to our collection of national parks. That's a really encouraging Mm. thought. Anita, how do the national parks receive funding? I mean, where does the money come from? So the main source of income for the parks is is a government grant. So that's the core funding. And then over the past few years, many of them have been driven towards generating commercial income from running visitor centres, activities and, and other things. And of course, during the pandemic, most of these commercial income streams have dried up almost completely. And that's been putting the national parks in a very, very challenging situation. And it's also important to note that the funding situation is not the same across Scotland, Wales and England. The national parks have seen real recognition that they are critical in supporting a green recovery and have just received a 10% uplift in their income. And this is really to manage all the higher volumes of visitors and all the challenges that came with the pandemic. And in England, unfortunately, that picture is rather less positive because the England national parks have now seen a real-term reduction in funding by 40% over the past 10 years. So a 40% reduction in income at a time when we're talking about their critical role in tackling the nature and climate emergency. 
whereas the Welsh national parks have had a 10% uplift. That, that sort of doesn't surprise me. And we had a podcast recently with some, some colleagues from Wales talking about the Future Gen Act and the Welsh attitude towards sustainability. So I'm not I'm not remotely surprised that the Welsh are funding their national parks and the English government is choosing not to do so. But that's fascinating. Yes, it, it is. And I mean, this is really critical. We have seen over the past few months, large scale redundancies across the national park authorities. And I think that's really important to bear in mind when we're asking the authorities to do more to work differently, we cannot expect them to do that if they are in a constant state of crisis management. No, we can't. But your organisation, the Campaign for National Parks, isn't a statutory organisation, it is. it's an NGO and you have an independence. And, but your history predates the establishment of national parks? We're very proud of the fact that, that our organisation was actually set up by the pioneers who were campaigning for the establishment of national parks in this country. And so our history goes back just over 80 years now. And we have ever since then continued to campaign as the only independent voice for the preservation and the enhancement of our national parks. So they're a crucial part of our collective national heritage, and they're enormously important to our health and well-being as a nation, both physically and mentally, but also to the to health and well-being of our countryside. Guy, they're not in a fantastic state, though, are they? What are some of the issues and problems that you've identified at Rewilding Britain to do with national parks? Yes, I mean, I, I, just to say, I, I live um, now uh, on the edge of Dartmoor National Park, and I'm, I'm absolutely um, thrilled to be living in, and feel very lucky to be living in such a beautiful part of the world. But just to pick up on one of the things that Anita said, um, it's true to say that national parks have uh, some of the highest uh, levels of landscape protection in Britain. But it wouldn't be quite true to say that they have the highest levels of environmental protection vis-a-vis nature and biodiversity. Because actually, if you look at the quality and condition of, of nature reserves of triple SIs, sites of special scientific interest within national parks, they're actually in a worse state overall and on average than triple SIs outside of national parks. To put that in another way, three quarters of nature reserves within national parks are in poor condition. And I think that's a really telling a sign of, of how nature is faring in Britain as a whole uh, and specifically within our protected landscapes, what are meant to be our most precious parts of, of the country. Uh, and so that's why Rewilding Britain has been uh, calling for and has recently launched this new campaign to call for wilder national parks because we want to see national parks leading the way towards a wilder Britain, leading the drive for nature recovery and doing a far more to restore nature within their park boundaries. That's a slightly shocking statistic that three quarters of the sites are in a parlous state. Is it because we've taken our eye off the ball? I mean, have we just not been concentrating about what's been going on in our national parks? Have we not been looking after them properly? Or is there something else at play here, Guy? I think there's something quite fundamental about the history of national parks in this country and how and how that's developed as a set of protections. Now, they, they were set up, as Anita said, 70 years ago now. And at that time, the real threat to the countryside, as was seen by the government of the day, was urbanisation, was urban sprawl and industry. Uh, and that was right, I think, at the time. But I think what's happened since then, and is borne out by numerous uh, environmental studies, the, uh, the State of Nature reports that are regularly issued by conservation groups and so on, is that uh, since the war, industrial and intensive agriculture and, f- and commercial forestry have become the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss in our countryside. Uh, and you know, we've seen, for example, a colossal 56% decline in farm and bird species 
since 1970. Uh, you know, this is matched by, you know, precipitous declines in insect numbers. Uh, you know, and, and you go you go back further and you see that we've lost many of our keystone species, such as beavers or other predators um, and other parts of ecosystems that are crucial to the, their, their proper functioning. And I think what we're really saying is that this isn't necessarily the responsibility or the fault of national park authorities. Really, if anyone's to blame, it's it's central governments for not giving the powers and resources to national park authorities to really do what they now need to do. And, and we're saying that, look, they've done a fantastic job of protecting the landscapes in national parks from overdevelopment and industry for the most part over the last 70 years. But to really equip national parks for the 21st century, for the big challenges we face in terms of the biodiversity crisis, the collapse of species and the climate crisis, we need to give national park authorities new powers uh, and we need the whole public sector really pulling its weight here because um, whilst, whilst a lot of land in national parks is owned privately, we've actually identified that actually there's quite a lot of land also that's owned by other parts of the public sector. So that's not just national park authorities themselves, but also organisations like the Forestry Commission, uh, the Ministry of Defence and councils. And we think that they could all be collectively doing a lot more to boost nature recovery and rewilding on their land. Well, I want to come back to who owns the land, because I think that's really a fascinating subject. But just touching on that element of rewilding the national parks. Now, Anita, do you think that would be a good thing to do, to try and get rewilding into those natural spaces? Or can you foresee some problems with it? Can I start by just picking up on a couple of points that, that Guy has just made? Because I think they, they are really important. I think what we need to be aware of is that the challenges that we have in the national parks in terms of the climate crisis, the, the, the nature crisis, are to do with a, with a number of areas. One is clearly structural, and that's to your point also who owns the land, what are the powers that we have. Then there are some challenges in terms of delivery. How quickly have the authorities and other landowners been able and willing to change their ways of managing land? And then there is, there is another point I've made, which is about ownership, not just in the sense of who owns the land, but who feels a sense of belonging and a sense of ownership. So to what extent have we been bringing people along with all our ideas about nature emergencies, about doing things differently to have national parks that are fit for the 21st century and beyond? So it's quite a... I think it's quite a complex picture and there isn't a simple answer, which is why I hesitate to say, yes, rewilding provides an answer. I think it does provide part of an answer and part of a solution. And as such, I think it's incredibly important to have campaigns like the current one run by Rewilding Britain. I think rewilding has just incredible power to speak to people and, and engage audiences that have previously not been involved in the conversation, haven't shown a lot of interest in national parks. In, in landscapes, and not because they are not important, but it's because they just didn't know about them. And I think that has been one of the great achievements of the rewilding agenda, to, to change that. I think we have now come to a point where it's worth pausing to see if we're all speaking the same language. And if what I mean by rewilding is the same as what somebody we ask in the street about it understands rewilding to mean. Because we're having, at the moment, a slight challenge in that there are so many new concepts flying around. So government is very much talking about, together with, with the protected landscapes, about nature recovery. So we really need to define where rewilding sits in relation to nature recovery. As far as I'm concerned, one is part of the other. But we need to really, I think, focus on the on the nuances, because what it comes down to is that, that rewilding is a form, a very specific form of land management. 
And when I say specific, I mean that it is something that doesn't consist of just leaving nature to do its thing. There is a lot of scientific evidence and scientific knowledge that underpins rewilding when it's done properly. And also, I think most importantly, and, and Guy knows this better than I do, rewilding looks very different in different places. So we can't say let's rewild the national parks because for a lot of people that means let's plant trees which may or may not be appropriate in the, the individual locations. So it's really about introducing a bit of nuance in that conversation. And once we've done that, I'll be very happy to endorse rewilding across national parks. Just to respond to a couple of those points, I think, I think Anita's right that rewilding has become quite a, a broad term to many people uh, recently, which makes a difference from perhaps a couple of years ago when it was seen as narrow and polarizing and extreme. So to be honest, I think we're probably happier that it's now seen as a bit broader uh, and more accepted by my, my many people. But obviously yeah. that brings with it issues of definition. Um, and I just wanted to read out very briefly what Rewilding Britain, how we define rewilding. And we, we define it as the large scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. Um, and so there's very much a human role here. Uh, it's not about land abandonment or simply leaving nature to do what it wants to from the, from the outset, because obviously uh, we've, we've messed up environments a lot already in Britain. And, you know, we have to also, if we want to see nature returned in its full glory, we do need to do things to intervene into that system. It's no good just sort of taking our hands off and going, uh, you know, an area of, of ecological disaster and going, well, back to you now, you know, over, over to you. You know, things need to be reintroduced. Other practices need to still be maintained. You know, if, if we want to, say, for example, reduce grazing in one area because it's overgrazed, you'll have to control that somehow. You'll have to introduce, you know, some form of like fencing or using, you know, using sort of electronic collars on cattle and so on, things like that. And there's also really interesting things being done to reintroduce missing keystone species such as beavers, for example. So there is definitely a, a large degree of human intervention still in, in rewilding. Um, but obviously the aim is to ultimately restore those natural processes so that, yes, ultimately we do have a more fully functioning ecosystem that's healthy and is able to take care of itself later down the line. Now, in Britain, I, I think we should be clear about what is being aimed for here. I would absolutely see rewilding as part of a broader spectrum of approaches to nature recovery. And there are parts of the country where it's going to be absolutely right to continue the sorts of traditional conservation techniques and management that sustain things like wildflower meadows, for example. Um, you know, we've lost 97% of all of our species-rich grassland. And obviously, if, if, that, if those were simply allowed to scrub over and we lost the remaining 3%, that would be not good. It would not be a good outcome. But there are cl clearly plenty of other areas of the country where intensive agriculture and uh, commercial forestry and so on have um, really sort of, you know, excised the remaining uh, natural landscape, but are not necessarily very productive. So in some areas of um, upland areas or, or hillsides where they've been overgrazed for, for many decades by sheep grazing and so on, they could benefit from different practices. Some of them traditional nature conservation practices and some of them you could call rewilding. And the thing is, is that overall, what Rewilding Britain is calling for is 5% is of Britain to be rewilded as core rewilding areas. Another 25% returned to a broader mosaic of you know, nature-friendly farming, uh, of habitat restoration, of wildlife corridors. And that to us is what the 30 by 30 pledge that governments have recently been making ought to be. Uh, and I think the problem is, is at the moment, governments, including our own, including the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, has, has sort of made this very welcome pledge to protect 30% of Britain's land for nature by 2030. But it's very unclear what that means. 
And the existing, you know, the kind of the press release that we got from number 10 about this late last year, likely assumed that the national parks and AOMBs would all count towards that in their current state, thereby amounting to about 26% of that 30% total. And we would say, well, that's just not credible. There's clearly, you know, as, as we've talked about already, clearly nature is declining and has, has declined in our national parks. And we need to see them made a lot wilder if they're to count towards that. Well, there's a lot to unpick in that. And I guess I want to start by thinking about that concept that, you know, you were saying 5%, you're calling for 5% of the land to be truly rewilded. And obviously some of that 5% of UK land is going to be in national parks. But that means you might, I guess, immediately create that dilemma between trees versus people, you know, if I can put it in a shorthand. I mean, if a space that's nature friendly, that's biodiverse, that's rich in habitat, that offers all sorts of opportunities for us to reintroduce and support a variety of keystone species, not just beavers, but others, may in essence be less friendly towards people. And I think what I heard Anita saying was that actually we need to take people on the journey with us. So do you think by doing that, we're setting up, if you like, this sort of almost unsolvable conflict between what is good for the natural world, but less good for us as people who need to get to those open spaces for all of the aspects of our mental and physical well-being. Okay, I was just going to say, I mean, there are already lots of people in national parks across Britain who are doing some fantastic things to rewild. Um, We've got um, various rewilding projects in in our rewilding network who are based in national parks. So for example, in the Lake District, um, there's Wild Ennerdale run by the National Trust. Um, that's restoring juniper trees and other um, native species to, to the hillsides of the Lake District. Um, we've got uh, also in the Lake District, we've got Wild Horse Water, which is run by the RSPB on land belonging to United Utilities. And it's you know doing some fantastic things there in some, in some places, reducing grazing, uh, but also you know providing new opportunities in terms of, of employment and, and jobs. And you know, we've 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 looked at the 20 or 25 so rewilding projects across England that we've got on our network. And actually across those sites, we've seen a 47% increase in job numbers as a result of those projects uh, entering into rewilding uh, and a ninefold increase in volunteering opportunities in doing, in doing the work of that, those sorts of conservation and rewilding projects. So for us, I think rewilding goes in hand with repeopling to some extent and also is about attracting people to visit these rewilded places because they're more exciting for nature because they're more exciting to experience you know i'm very much uh, personally also very committed to to increasing access to nature and you know i think i think one of the problems we see in our national parks today is that there are quite a lot of honeypot sites where visitors are sort of funneled to by national park authorities who obviously need to be able to manage numbers you know particularly during during lockdown covid uh, we've seen obviously increased visitor numbers to national parks and National Park authorities not being given the funding or resources to deal with those increased numbers and obviously losing money from having to close cafes and and, and visitor centres. But I think what rewilding might be able to offer is that it it helps to potentially disperse uh, visitor numbers from some of the existing honeypot sites to new sites within national parks to say, here is an amazing project of nature recovery of rewilding that's going on. Let's come and, you know, come, come and look at it, come and see what's going on here and spread out some of the impacts of, of high visitor numbers. Anita? I couldn't agree more, Guy, and I think all of that is is absolutely true. I'll add a couple of things. One is that the effect of dispersing visitors across across the national parks is is really important, and I know that a lot of the the authorities, the national park authorities, are working on that at the moment, as are their partners who, who own land and manage land. And that is an effect that not a, that I wouldn't only associate with rewilding, but with 
making sure that nature across the national parks is of, a, is of the highest quality possible. Um, I would also say, though, with national parks, we, we must get to a point where we all acknowledge that they're living landscapes. That, to me, makes them the perfect showcases for demonstrating how the highest levels of nature protection can be combined with accommodating the, the everyday infrastructures and services that they need to provide. So national parks, I speak for England and Wales, have a population of about 412,000. And of course, that's nothing compared to the millions of visitors that go there every year. And that means we need to make sure that the infrastructure we have in place and the services we have in place do not work against nature, but actually help us to protect and enhance nature, but also help us to engage people with the natural environment. Because that, I think, is one of the, one of the critical points here. There is no use for, for theoretical statements that say you must behave like this when you're out in the countryside unless we allow people to visit and to experience for themselves what it's like to be surrounded by, by nature. And I think that's where you're absolutely right. Rewilding has a very, very critical role to play. And in addition to that, we need some enabling mechanism that allows us to bring people closer to nature. So what I'm suggesting is that we do need a much more holistic view of what life in the national parks is like and where we need to make changes in order to improve nature, but also improve the quality of life for all that live there and visit. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm Evershed Sutherland. You talked earlier about needing to take people on this journey, Anita, needing to explain to people what was going on. And we did see some really startlingly shocking examples of people not really understanding either natural parks or even the natural landscape during the worst parts of lockdown and abuse of the landscape and littering and, and, and all sorts of things. Have we failed in our education with our communities to explain how important those natural spaces are? I mean, we don't want to be just having people looking at them and them as living museums. We don't want people to only see and not to experience. So we want people to go, we want people to engage, we want people to walk, to climb, to, to experience the wild spaces. But how do we do that and still balance the needs of those spaces not to be trodden down into nothing? And I love Guy's expression of honeypots. I mean, that is that is just classic, isn't it? Everybody goes to the same site as soon as the sun comes out and they don't disperse. But how do we how do we manage that? That sounds to me to be an almost intractable problem getting people in, but stopping them from doing doing the damage and preserving the landscape and rewilding the landscape and ensuring access. Those are complicated. We know and we have a lot of evidence, both from urban context and from, from landscape scale context, that the better people understand the places that they, they live in or um, visit, and the more of a sense of, of ownership they have, the fewer the incidents of vandalism and, and negative behaviours. And I think the pandemic has brought those messages home again. I would say by the time visitors, especially first-time visitors, arrive in a national park and come across the first sign that says, please take your litter home, it's already too late. We really need to, and that's back to my earlier point, meet people where they are, which means that national parks and the messages about the natural environment need to extend into urban areas, and definitely beyond the boundaries of protected landscapes. So we need education, we need campaigns, 
and we need practical opportunities for, for people to visit the parks. And in some cases, with especially with newer visitors, that has to include that we, we help them visit the parks, that we, we organise days out. In other cases, that we provide information on how people can, can travel sustainably. So ideally, leaving their cars at home, using public transport. So it needs a whole range of, of measures. We're talking about the national parks as if it's a collective whole, as if it's one body administering these 15 parks, but they're all individual authorities in their own right, aren't they? And somehow when you talk about national parks, we kind of assume they belong to us, the nation, but they don't, do they, Guy? They actually belong, many of the parts of the national parks belong to private landowners. Could that be part of the problem here? Yes, absolutely. I mean, just just to come back on something that Anita was just saying, though, was that uh, you know, I wanted to give an example. I mean, I, I visited at the weekend in Dartmoor National Park this fantastic place called Piles Copse, which is one of the three upland oak woods that are still left on on Dartmoor high altitude oak woods, which are amazing. Like w- Wisman's Wood is another of these, and it's um it's a fantastic place. And the uh, the landowner who comes from a family of conservationists who owned the place since the nineteen thirties, he he's been putting up um, some really useful information boards uh, to, for visitors as they walk along the, the footpath towards the cops and saying what, the, what, the, what they're doing to preserve the place, why it's very important that, you know, uh, there's no camping or fires lit or anywhere near the, the cops, but also talking about dispersal. He's actually talked on this, these um, information boards about how to reduce the erosion of the footpaths, which uh, is all on uh, deep peat in the area, which is obviously a you know, very important carbon store. So to reduce the erosion, actually to not necessarily just use the footpath, but to spread out, um, which I thought was just a really interesting um, approach and quite a contrast to, I, I noticed another uh, nearby landowner had decided to put up a no access sign on a piece of land that was actually entirely open access. So he was doing this illegally, uh, but made me feel a lot more annoyed than the notice boards from the landowner giving information and, and welcoming people, but saying, please, please pay attention to this, uh, this important information. But I also agree with Anita that it's, it's a bit too late just to be dealing with information boards on site. We need far more information, public information for how uh, we should be respectful towards nature uh, when we visit it. And I think, you know, one of the clear signs of government uh, failure on this, and this has been their failure to fund promotion of the countryside code, uh, mm. you know, discovered that last year, that for the last 10 years, the government has been spending only two grand a year promoting the countryside code. And that is just, you know, appalling, really. And um, that's, that's, Thankfully, that has budget budget has now increased to I understand fifty thousand pounds for this year's budget that Natural England has to spend. Still, kind of a drop in the ocean though, compared to most public advertising campaigns. When we consider that I think it was about fifty million pounds was spent on the Get Ready for Brexit advertising. So, you know, clearly, clearly, one thing important to promote. Uh, the government finds the money to be able to do that. And I think it should be doing a lot more to promote responsible access to the countryside. Sorry, I realise I haven't answered the question you just asked. No, I just wanted to to unpick what was happening inside those national park authorities, because my sense is, and, you know, and I think the criticisms have come from Chris Packham and others, that actually they're not fit for purpose, those boards that manage those parks. And that actually, you know, you just cited two very different landowners, one supporting mm-hmm. access, trying to balance the need for people to go out and experience a national, you know, an open space against one putting up, don't come here, no entry signs. And and I know that the work and the, the, the examples you've uncovered in your book and on your blog about who owns England show that you know there's a big issue about access of land ownership but in the parks themselves if we've got private landowners and we've got boards of people who don't really want us to go and visit those parks we're working against a double barrier aren't we 
Well, I think I think the way uh, to to try and arrive at some new settlement on this is around the future of national parks management plans, um, and that might sound like quite a dull bureaucratic solution, but I think there's a really important solution here to be found in this because um, national parks are national park authorities are have a statutory obligation to to publish uh, and review management plans every five years, and these are really important documents for the future of each national park. But at the moment. Um, the, uh, the, the only obligation on other public sector bodies who own land in national parks to actually uh, do anything about these management plans is to have regard to them. To have regard to them is a classic bit of legal weasel words, which means I could have some regard to this management plan and to the purpose of the national park, but I don't actually really have to do anything about it. Um, what the uh, independent uh, Glover review, led by Julian Glover, uh, recommended when it reported to government back in 2019 was that in future, uh, public bodies uh, and, and water companies who also own quite a lot of land in, in national parks and are called statutory undertakers with regard to national parks legislation, that all of those uh, landowners, those public landowners and those water company landowners, ought to have to further the management plans of national park authorities. Now, what, what that basically means is that if the National Park Authority in future said, for example, uh, we'd like to establish 10% core rewilding areas within our national park, where can we do that? Well, we can't necessarily force private or third sector landowners to do this. However, we could therefore expect the public sector to have to further that management plan and they might have to start establishing uh, more rewilding or nature recovery or whatever on their land instead. And we looked at the area of land owned by public bodies and water companies in national parks and across all of Britain's national parks, they actually own overall 13% of the national parks area. So in other words, it's within the government's gift to deliver this if they want something within their gift to deliver 10% core rewilding areas across all national parks solely on public sector land if they should wish to do so. Now in reality, uh, like the example I mentioned earlier, there's already quite a lot of private and third sector landowners doing some fantastic things in national parks to, uh, to deliver nature recovery, some of them doing rewilding as well, and obviously we'd want to see more of that happening in the future. But I think the crucial thing here is about the, the expectation on central government. They're talking about 30% of Britain's land uh, by 2030 for nature. To do that, they need to deliver a lot wilder uh, set of national parks. So we've got an opportunity to put some pressure on the land that's owned by, by the public bodies like the water authorities. Do you think we should be putting similar pressure on those private landowners to do something about the state of the parks? And should we be opening up those boards of control to people who have nature as their primary interest rather than perhaps land ownership? I think that for me, there's something about, about a, a purely top-down driven approach that we have learned over history that doesn't really work. And so, so we need a little bit more than just government saying, this is what we want to do. Because the, the complexity of ownership is such, and, and you've just established that, that even if government said, we want 10% of national parks given over to rewilding, I would very much doubt that that would happen, simply because the different landowners, even uh, you know, including the, the, the statutory bodies and the other public undertakers, work to completely different timescales. So by the time you have actually synchronised those different timescales, we've lost another, another few really critical years. So that's, that's the first thing. The second is, to my mind, and, and you know, Guy has, I think, expressed that really well, and, and we have been campaigning for that, also as part, of, uh, as part of helping to shape the Glover Review, that the most effective way to hand over power to the National Parks Authorities would be to update the statutory purposes. And that's something, you know, it will need legislation. Yes, it takes time to do that. 
but we're talking about a relatively short amount of time if we put our minds to it. That's, I think, critical in all of this. And as soon as the parks management plans have statutory status, we can do away with a lot of those, oh, but I can't do this because my own strategy requires me to do X that's coming back from landowners. And we can just say, this is what it is. Make it work and let's make it work together. Do you think there's an appetite for that? Though? I think, yeah, I, I, think, I think there is an appetite. But I, I also feel that it may almost feel too straightforward as a solution because it requires government to just take a very firm stance. Mm. And that, that can be tricky. And of course, we have issues around land ownership and who says what I can do with my land. I think politically, that is a very, very challenging topic. To, to tackle. But we also have a number of other mechanisms. For instance, we have the proposed very significant reforms to the planning system. And yet, national parks don't really feature in those other than in a very vague statement that says, of course, all the protected landscapes will remain protected. And that, I think, is not enough. So we have a real opportunity. That doesn't feel like a real commitment to me. That feels like you no, could probably run no, a coach and horses through that one. Well, exactly. And it, and it isn't. And so you can see that I'm very much for pragmatic, straightforward solutions. I think we have a few in terms of updating the statutory purposes. But at the same time, we need to look across the picture. This was um, also one of Glover's points. We need to see where else we need to make changes to ensure that the protected landscapes are truly protected and actually deliver their full potential. That also means we need to look at other departments, not just DEFRA. We need to know what MHCLG is doing to own the planning agenda. We need to know what's happening in terms of economic development, in terms of the wider international trade conversations where, where farming, which is the main form of land use in national parks, is deeply affected. Yeah, you're calling for a joined up governmental approach here. And uh, forgive me if I feel yeah. a little sceptical on that agenda. <laughs> I mean, isn't there, but isn't there the issue must be here that we haven't necessarily got the right people sitting on those boards, the boards of the of management sitting on national on, on the national park bodies, so the national park authorities. I mean, if they were full of environmentalists and conservationists and dare I say rewilders, surely the agenda around, you know, what is happening in those national parks might be different, mightn't it, Guy? Well, look, I mean, I, I've um, I've spoken to some um, some very keen and committed conservationists who are, who are involved on national park boards. You know, you've got Neil Hathathine, who's the chair of the Yorkshire Dales National Park Authority, for example, is doing some fantastic things up at his, his farm and, and trying to, you know, mainstream that agenda through the Yorkshire Dales as well. And I mean, I think, you know, re there has actually been some really encouraging developments within some national park authorities in, in recent years, because I think they are... You know, although they don't, they, they do not have the necessary powers to to really deliver on some of these things. They are really obviously waking up to and and, and fully aware of um, the the crises we face, and that you know that, that they can see. You know, we've we've been waiting for nearly two years now for a response from the government to the Glover review. Well, some national park authorities are not are not waiting that long. They they've already started to incorporate some of the recommendations that the Glover review, uh, I think, rightly made. So, for example, Glover recommended setting up, uh, you know quote, wild areas, quote, in national parks. He, he didn't say a huge amount about what, what that um, what that could mean, um, but some uh, national park authorities have already started to kind of put forward their own ideas around this. So, for example, Exmoor National Park Authority brought out uh, a vision for nature recovery uh, last uh, November, I think it was, in which it was talking about restoring uh, natural processes over 10% of Exmoor National Park. It brought up some very nice uh, images as well of a kind of uh, Exmoor as it currently is and a more nature-rich Exmoor, which, you know, I think delighted some possibly 
possibly antagonised others who, who didn't see it as necessarily a wonderful future. Look at those pictures and, and, and compare the present to the future. I think probably a lot of people would think future vision there was 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 one we need to aspire towards. Um, and similarly, even very encouragingly, the Lake District National Park Authority has just brought out uh, a new draft management plan, which it's consulting on. It, it says, and I quote, it proposes core areas of nature recovery will cover a minimum of 10% of the national park by 2025. Uh, and it even talks about having planned reintroductions of key missing species like black grouse, pine martin, and even golden and white-tailed eagles. So, I mean, I think that's a really great step forward from two national park authorities there. There are others who are already starting to think about nature recovery in their forthcoming management plans. But I think the, the key point here is that whatever the makeup of national park authority boards, whatever they say in their management plans, if they aren't given the powers or the resources to do anything about it, they won't, won't be able to. And that's where central government has to come in and has to step in. Some encouraging thoughts there, some encouraging points. And it isn't all doom and gloom, but you're right. I mean, I think the call is clearly to central government. And just if not now, when, in that famous phrase, it's, you know, we haven't got time to wait. Thank you both so much for being with us. I mean, we've had a slightly challenging connection to you, Guy, but that's because you live on the middle of Dartmoor. <laughs> Lucky man. Edge of Dartmoor. <laughs> Lucky man. Lucky man. Um, so, so you know, the, the broadband didn't reach out that far, but it was fantastic to, to have you on the show. And thank you so much for that. And and you've put out a very clear um, agenda and call for action to government there. Anita, you've been asking people to be more aware, but w- would you have a definite call out to listeners of Planet Pod? What can our listeners do to support and help the health of our national parks? I think apart I from making a donation to the campaign for national parks, which of course would be brilliant. <laughs> I, I would never ever use a podcast <laughs> like this to ask for donations. No. I've done um, it on your behalf. Thank you so much. Please do. I think there are a number of individual actions that we each can take. I would invite everyone to go and visit the national parks because they are truly stunning places. And the more we know about them and the better we understand them, the better we can protect them and, and speak on their behalf. So that's that's the first thing. When you go to the national parks, make sure you travel sustainably. First point. And make sure that your visit has the lowest carbon footprint possible, the smallest carbon footprint possible. So that's the kind of individual responsibility. What I would also say is I would encourage everyone to not just see a visit to the national parks as a, as a journey from A to B, and then we go back home again. When we're there, it's really important to engage with the local communities alongside engaging with nature, just to understand what the ways of life in a national park look like and take that understanding back to where we live. Guy, Anita's put a, a, a plea out to listeners and you put a very clear set of objectives out to government, but is there anything you'd like Planet Pop listeners to do? Yes, if you'd like to join our call on the government to create wilder national parks, then you can do so by signing our petition at rewildingbritain.org.uk. Thank you. We hope we've done a little today to enlighten people about the importance and the role and the challenges facing our national parks. So a huge thank you to my guest, to Anita. Thank you so much for having me. And to Guy. Thank you very much. And um, obviously, you can find out more about the Campaign for National Parks on the show notes for today and also Guy's fantastic book, Who Owns England, and his blog. Thank you both for for being with us. Um, Thank you, too, to our listeners. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter or Instagram. And why not subscribe? And then you have every episode seamlessly dropping into your podcast provider of choice. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programs. Thanks for listening.